This is why grace is so beautiful to a Christian. It's why Christ is beautiful. It's why the cross is so beautiful. Because God moved when we were unwilling and hardened against Him. Spiritually. And as we continue on in our exposition of John, please turn with me to John chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 9 through 13 today. When we look at the book of John and we understand, uh, again, that this is uh, the beloved disciple, the beloved uh, apostle's perspective on the Christ as he's uh, relaying these words, uh, either if he wrote them physically himself or relayed them to uh, what was called an amanusis, a, a stylist basically, a Greek um, a Greek, uh, an expert in the Greek language who would take down on a small tablet usually made of wax with a stylus and he would actually carve into that wax what was being said. And then he would use that kind of as a, a scratch pad more or less. So if he, he made mistakes, he could literally just scratch it out and then rewrite that later on a piece of parchment. And so as these words have been handed down to us, again from John, ultimately through the Holy Spirit, let us focus on the Christ. And I've said that over and over and over and over again. And when you come to Wednesday night Bible study or you hear some of the, the, the prior sermons or the videos that we put out, you'll see constantly that the focus is upon Christ. Why? Because the entire Old Testament is about Christ and the entire New Testament is about Christ. And I think in our, in our culture, in our society, especially in American Christianity, we have this propensity to pull away from uh, something outside of us and we look inward and we focus on ourselves, we focus on uh, our own thoughts, our own presuppositions, our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, and then we totally neglect in every possible way the Christ. And we push Him to the side. And when we do that, we realize how sinful our hearts are. We need Christ. I need Christ. We all need Christ. Read with me John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Father, as we prepare to look verse by verse into what you've said about your Son, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, open our hearts and our minds to the truth found within this Scripture. Lord, let that pierce us and change us and conform us more to the image of Your Son as only You can. Father God, it is in Your perfect and holy and precious and wonderful name we pray. In accordance with Your will we ask. Amen. So starting in verses 9-10, through 10, we've just read them and there's a reason why uh, generally I'll read the whole section together, the whole pericope together. All right? So a pericope is one complete unit of thought in Greek. We read that whole section of thought and then we unpack the individual verses. We exposit the individual verses. So if you notice in most sermons, by the time that we're done, we've read through the entire passage twice. Or we've at least spoken about the entire passage twice because this is the most important thing that I could say. The Word of God. Verbatim. Without anything else on it. So verses 9-10. through 10. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He, which would be the light, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So our first point, knowledge of facts or the reality of Christ does not equal salvation. Knowledge of facts or the reality of Christ does not equal salvation. Oh, as we've discussed in earlier sermons, as we've looked through the first few verses in the first chapter of John, we see that the brilliant light of God is Jesus Christ. It's Christ. Now, please understand, Christ was not 
just a human with a little bit of power. He was not David Copperfield. He wasn't Houdini or some kind of magician. Some normal human being with just a little sleight of hand. Fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ. Now the writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 1.3a, the first section of 1.3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of His, and that would be God, His glory, and the exact representation of His, God's nature. So again, we see Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God. Now theologically, we would call that the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. That though He was fully man and fully God, He chose to veil a portion of His deity so that when He walked around on the earth, people wouldn't just burst into flames when they saw Him. Because remember what happened when God, the fullness of God's glory was uh, uh, passing by Moses when he tucked him into the cleft uh, of the rock. He said, I'm not going to let you see the fullness of my glory. I'll let you see the backside of my glory. And what happened? Moses, when he came down off the mountain, his face was literally glowing with the reflected glory of God. And the Israelites, who likely numbered between one to three million people, if you count women and children, were so terrified of Moses' face that they literally asked for him to wear a veil. They said, it's too much for us. That glory is too much for us to look at. Cover it, because it's terrifying us. And so Jesus did the same thing. And we see that almost completely unveiled in the transfiguration when he shines as bright as the sun. And I would argue that Peter, James, and John actually were knocked out physically when they saw that because the text says when they woke up. Hey, can we make a, a, a little tent for you, Moses, and Elijah? But Peter only said that after he woke up. So when we think about the glory of God, we have to, we have to co-locate that with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look back uh, in, in, in John 1.9 you could bring that up on the on the verse on, on the board it states that he the light the Christ came into and enlightened every man now let me let me just flip this whole verse on its head for a second because it's likely not what you think that it means and we have a, a propensity of doing this again we read our presuppositions our thoughts our opinions into the text and when we really break it down and look at it this is actually not an emotionally positive statement towards us as humans it's not. This is not referring to an enlightenment of our own understanding. It's not spiritual enlightenment in any way. Primarily, why? Because we know that not every single man, woman, and child is spiritually enlightened. How do we know that? There exists a real hell. And that real hell will be full of people who do not ever believe in Jesus Christ. That's a terrible reality, so let's look at it in the proper uh, context, and the syntax forces us to see that this enlightenment that, that John is speaking of here is actually the creative act of the light, Jesus Christ. Look in verse 10, John 1.10. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So let me, let me break that down for a second. That means that not every member of society that he created knew him. Think about that. The focus here is on the creative act of the Christ rather than the spiritual enlightening act of the Christ. These people were given life. They were given light in Christ Jesus. And they didn't know him. They didn't care to know him. The only two people in human history who at their inception had a perfect knowledge of God at least in, the, in, a, in a human sense, if you could, would be Adam and Eve. Why? Because there was no sin. There was nothing that separated them from God in the garden up until the moment of sin, in which case they were expelled and cast out of the presence of God. And so everything, unless God chose to, to manifest Himself to, to people like He did in the Old Testament or to the prophets uh, or, or to the writers of various books in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, everybody else had to learn about God through either His miracles or spoken word or things written. Not every single man, woman, and child then had a perfect, unblemished relationship with God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. 
So they had to learn. We see that the purpose of John in this and how he's explaining this is to draw the fact that though the almighty, omnipotent, perfect, holy God made humans and put his thumbprint on them and gave them life and purpose, they did not know him when Christ came. They didn't. Romans 1, 18-21 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... His, God's, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they, and that sinful humanity, are without excuse. For even though they, sinful humanity, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So understand here in the context of Romans, their knowledge here is facts, not salvific, not pertaining to salvation, not dealing with the fact that they were spiritually enlightened. They just said, you know what? Yep, God exists. I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Yet we see tangible evidences everywhere, all around us, of the fact that God is real. Yet many will continue in unbelief. And, and I think John and I have talked about this a little bit. We like talking about the science side, the apologetic side sometimes of uh, God putting his thumbprint on things and us being able to actually tangibly see them. Uh, you'll, you'll see that a number of DNA researchers, uh, neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, a lot of those people convert to Christianity. And it's strange because here's the most brilliant people in the world making the most money of almost any people in the world for any type of, if you even want to call it a normal job. And it comes to a point where everything that they have been taught in middle school, in high school, in college, in grad school, in med school, what have you, a lot of those presuppositions are not matching with what they're actually seeing in things like the human genome or DNA or the 23 separate hormones that it takes to clot human blood. The, the question is, what happened when we only had 22? Everybody would bleed out the next time they got a paper cut. That's what would happen, which would mean that there's no humans. You can't evolve that ability. All of these things existed in perfect harmony. We see this, again, from the double helix pattern of DNA down to the tiniest of details in things like a flagellar motor in microorganisms that we literally can't reproduce with our technology. We can't. There, to, to try and explain mathematically some of the things that are, that are going on here. Uh, there are actually, if you want to call them pickup trucks, I don't know the, the technical uh, term for them, but I'm just going to call them pickup trucks. So let's say that there's some, some portion inside of your DNA that's a little bit off. And your body notices that because, by the way, there's this little device that goes and scans each double helix at the same time. It checks to make sure they're in a certain order, and if they're not in a certain order, it lets your whole body know, and then it goes and grabs the things that are necessary and replaces those so your DNA doesn't get all messed up. But mathematically, if we look at zeros and ones, ASCII code, and we look at the actual coding mathematically that has been put into the pickup trucks, if you will, and what do those pickup trucks do? They take a, a new sequence of DNA, they put it in their little truck bed, and they drive it to where it needs to go. Back up from that for a second. Uh, ASCII code. In your calculator, zeros and ones. That's all that it is, zeros and ones, to, in, in different order, if you will. And if we actually took just a normal calculator and we typed all the zeros and ones out, you're looking at like a couple pages of code in size 12 font. And then mathematically, if we look at the input and the output of that singular pickup truck that deals with your DNA in zeros and ones, it would fill up an entire set of Encyclopedia Britannica. 
something you can't see without a microscope. Perfect design, thumbprint of the Creator. We know in our hearts, regardless of culture, uh, that murder is wrong. And any of us, uh, regardless of our faith or perceived faith or lack of faith, would help any child. Now look at that child. Regardless of that child's race, their creed, or their religion, if we saw them entangled in something on the top of a working railroad track and there was a train coming. Everyone in here would agree with that. You wouldn't just sit there and watch that happen. There'd be something very wrong in you. And everyone would know that. And society would condemn you if you did nothing. Why? Because intrinsically, we know, inside of us, we know that humans have worth and value. That we have the mark of our Creator upon us. So answer me this. What would it benefit me or you, biologically, or from any evolutionary sense, to risk our lives for some child that we don't know who might be of a different race, creed, and faith if we're not really operating in a spiritual universe and we're just evolved? Because I can tell you for a fact that a coyote wouldn't do that for a human child. Coyote would go and try and eat the human child before the train ran both of them over. It wouldn't happen. But we see naturally, and it doesn't matter whether you believe in Christ or not, that inclination to desire to save that child. And any one of you, before you converted, if you're Christians, you would say the same thing. Yeah, of course I would. I would have done the exact same thing, Christian or not, if I saw that little kid entangled on something on a working railroad track because we know that human life has worth and value. I'm motivated by the humanity in front of me to save that kid, that child. And that speaks to the fact that there is something higher than our biology or learned traits. Something is acting upon me that is transcendent and that something is an innate knowledge of the Creator God, the one who gives light to all men. Now, it's important we see God's rebuke in John 1.10. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world, sinful humanity, was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. You see that when we look at this verse, it is not the universe that the writer of the book of John is speaking about. It's fallen, sinful, rebellious humanity. Burge, in his commentary on the book of John, asserts, quote, When we read about Jesus' appearance in the world, which is here in verse 10, or of God's love for the world in John 3.16, or of Jesus' salvation of the world in John 4.42, these passages are not ringing endorsements of the world, but testimonies to the character of God and His love. John 1.11 he, Jesus, came to his own, and those who were his, his own, excuse me, did not receive him. Our next point, if you know of him, do not deny him or reject him. If you know of him, do not deny him or reject him. Deuteronomy 10, 15 and 16. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them. And he chose their descendants, excuse me, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone, that stone is Jesus, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's one of the most damning sentences in the entire Bible. The stone which the builders rejected. If we trace the history of Judaism, it finds center in Yahweh 
promising the coming of his salvation. We see that all the way back into Genesis 3.15, shortly after the fall. All the way back to there, we see glimmers and promises and hopes of a coming Messiah throughout the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament until Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. The light promised. The life promised. The way promised. The truth promised. The good shepherd promised. The true king promised. The prophet promised. The ultimate high priest promised. All of his promises were fulfilled. All of the prophecy was fulfilled. Down to the type of woman that Christ would be born of and in what town and during what time period. Now hundreds of messianic prophecies were fulfilled in his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Perfectly in every possible way. Now think of all the pictures of Christ we see in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and the temple alone. So look at the imagery, the implementation, the design, if you will, of the temple and the tabernacle as we walk through some of these things. Think about Christ. Everything in the tabernacle, everything in the temple. I'm going to say that again. Everything in the tabernacle, everything in the temple points to Christ. Everything. Remember the showbread? Twelve loaves of bread represent the twelve tribes. I am the bread of life, said Jesus. The lampstand to give priests light inside of the tabernacle, inside of the temple. Jesus Christ, the light of life. Uh, The priest who intercedes on behalf of his people daily ministering in the temple or in the tabernacle, that is Jesus perpetually interceding for his people before the throne of God now. The one who offers up the sacrifice to God, that's what the Levitical priests did in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ offered up himself. He was both the high priest and the sacrifice. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice itself. When we look at the veil that separated the holy and the most holy. It was both in the temple and in the tabernacle. Remember, after Jesus' death, what happened? It was torn in half from top to bottom. Jesus was the veil of the temple. Think about that for a second. I'm, I'm going I'm to look back a couple verses. Psalm 118, 22-23, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected. They knew he was a stone and they rejected him. So God literally had to rip Christ apart in front of his own people to prove that he himself was God. And that act of destroying Christ in Isaiah uh, 50 or 51, I can't remember off the top of my head, it says it pleased Yahweh to crush him. It pleased God to crush his only begotten son. And what did that crushing do? What did that, what did that death do? What did that killing do? What did that murder do? Separated that distance between the holy and the most holy where now we have the right to enter into the presence of God through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Glimmers and pictures of Christ throughout the Old Testament. Look at the ark of God. The place where God's presence hovered and rested. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, says John. Remember what that word dwelt means? Tabernacled. He set up his tent with us. Who was he talking about? Jesus Christ. So the manifest presence of God literally was in Christ. We see Christ in the ark. The blood that was sprinkled on the ark every year during the Day of Atonement, or excuse me, every year on one day on the Day of Atonement, that blood was Christ's blood, representative of. 
yet he was rejected. He was openly rebuked by his own people with these piercing words. John 5, verse 39. You, he's speaking to Jews here, you search scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Now, here's why they rejected him. Uh, Because he didn't look like what they wanted him to look like. He didn't come to liberate them militarily and throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. He came to set them free spiritually. They didn't like that look. He didn't act like they wanted him to. He didn't even dress like they wanted him to. What did the Pharisees do? Lengthen the corner of their robes to look more pious and holy as they said their prayers in the streets. They literally wanted him to dress in a certain way if he was going to be a rabbi or a teacher. What does it say? He had one set of clothes. And they probably weren't the nicest thing on the planet. He didn't physically look like what they wanted him to look like. They were looking for a Saul or a David. They were looking for someone who stood head and shoulders above everybody else like Saul or who was more uh, physically beautiful like David. That's what they wanted. What did Isaiah say? He was comely of form. He was an ugly dude. That's what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. That he was less than normal. And so God reaches down into human history and he smashes every expectation of his own covenant people with who he would be when he came to provide salvation. He spoke and they hated him. He taught and they tried to kill him and throw him off a cliff. Luke 4, verse 28 through 30. And all the people in the synagogue... Now, who would have been in a synagogue? Jews and Jewish proselytes, people who had converted to Judaism. So, in essence, in the Old Testament, God's covenant people, people who professed to love God. Listen, listen to these words. They're timely. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up And they drove him, that's Jesus, out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Total aside, some commentators think that he manifested some portion of his deity and kind of just floated through the crowd. I don't buy it. I don't think so. It says passing through their midst. I think that what he did when he literally got to the precipice of the cliff or they got somewhere near the edge of the cliff because we know at least what they they drove him out of the city and they led him up to the brow of the hill. So he's on the top of the hill at this point. They're about to chuck him off and kill Christ. Speculation. This has nothing to do with the Bible. This is just my opinion. I think he turned around and he just looked at him. I think he literally just turned around and he looked at him. I don't think he said a word. And I think he just walked right through the middle of the crowd. And as they looked at him, as they gazed upon the Christ, and they saw in his eyes something that was different and higher and transcendent and terrifying. His authority and his deity. Because I can tell you a fact that one man, one singular man, will not make it in the face of a mob. Yet what does Christ do? He turns and he walks right through the middle of them. I don't think it was a miracle. I think they just saw some portion of his deity that terrified them. And they said, nope, I'm not going to mess with this guy. Something different about this dude. Here's the question. Do you know how he earned himself that little joy of, of getting about thrown off of a cliff? Here's what he did. He read from Isaiah 61 and then literally told them this. Today, this scripture that I just read to you, I just read to you God's word, this has been fulfilled in your ear. Period. That's what he said. Didn't say anything controversial. Didn't say anything crazy. He literally just said, by the way, I've already proven it with my miracles. I'm this guy. I am revealing myself to you. 
And what did people try to do? Throw him off a cliff. He told them, he spelled it out, he broke it down, he explained who he was and what he was there to do. So they tried to throw him off a cliff. Look at our sermon text. John said at the end of verse 11, his own did not receive him. I think that proves that. Our last set of verses, John 1, 12 through 13. But, that's a beautiful word in Scripture when we see that. But, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, this is very important, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. I'm going to read that last section there. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our last point. Repent and believe your birth is contingent upon God. Repent and believe your birth is contingent upon God. Some people do great damage to this verse or this, this, these two verses and other verses uh, much like this. Uh, and why? Because it greatly contradicts American Christianity that is so deeply uh, ingrained in our psyche that says that, hey, this, this can't be so. I got my, my right to vote. I got my right to do life how I want to do it. What did Frank Sinatra said? I did it my way. I'm doing it my way. Uh, Burger King, um, was it have it your way? I think used to be their old motto, right? But here we see that it's not of the will of flesh, not of your blood, not of your birth, but of God. What did that just totally do? Took away every aspect of our ability to say, I did it, it was me, look at I, look at we. What does the text say? Uh-uh. There's no option there. And to back this up, uh, as a side note, you can jot down Ephesians 2 right there and read Ephesians 2. And that will prove this section of verses. So let me, let me explain it in very simple words. Your ability to receive Him, Him being the Christ, to become His child, whether you watched His ministry with your own eyes nearly 2,000 years ago, or you believed in His name, it was not contingent upon you. I'm going to say that again. I've been hated deeply for saying these words, but they are so biblical and so true. It wasn't contingent upon you. Your spiritual birth was not contingent upon you. Some of the greatest... In, in America's eyes, some of the greatest evangelists in human history have said, it is about you. It is about you and it is about your ability right now outside of your relationship with God to choose Him. Finney and Billy Graham. Oberlin College. Finney, uh, as I look at the historical records of our church, actually said a big tent revival uh, on the northeast side of town. In I don't know, the mid-1800s. And taught things that were counter to what we're reading here in Scripture. Let me explain as we look at the text why this is so. It was not your bloodline, i.e. Jewish descent. It was not your people group. It was not your choice to be born in any way. Now, let's step aside from the text and think about this logically. Because remember how we talked about the fact that, that true logic and biblical logic always intersect, right? How, raise your hand if before you were born as a baby, you said, hey, mom and dad, create me. I don't see any hands, right? No hands. Same language. Same exact language. You did not choose to be born again. We'll, we'll, we'll walk through this. Just hang, hang with me if you, if you don't agree. 
It was not your choice to be born in any way, spiritually speaking. It was not your will or your inclination. Why? Because if we look at the text, if you could bring that back up on the board, verse 13, 113. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? God. Tell me this, this, this teaching is not wildly neglected in American Christianity. It's right in front of us, and I didn't make up the Bibles that are sitting in your lap or what's on the screen. It says that it is of God. So, so let's, let's continue. Let's, let's continue to look at this. It was God's movement upon your heart that preceded, that came before your belief in His Son. Look with me in John 3, verses 3 through 8. Jesus answered and said to him, and this would be Nicodemus at night, secret uh, little meeting here, because Nicodemus was on uh, the ruling council of Jerusalem. He was on the Sanhedrin. So it was not popular for this guy to come and talk with Jesus because Jesus was persona non grata, uh, enemy of the state, uh, public enemy number one, as the the Sanhedrin uh, probably would have called him in that day. Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, truly, truly, in Aramaic, verily, verily, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Think about that. What does the language say? You can't see it. Does it say you can't understand it? No, you can't even see it. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? I'm an old man, Jesus. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Listen, this is backing up our sermon text here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Period. Pause there. Keep, keep that up on the board if you don't mind. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, meaning that guess what? If, if you're a, a mother and a father, you get together and you have a baby, guess what that's born of? Physically speaking, the flesh. Spiritually, there is no possible way that a mother and father can get together and give spiritual birth to a child that will then float into heaven. It's not possible. So Jesus is using the exact same language here to say that as it pertains to your spiritual birth, it is not because of some physical act in creation, physically speaking, it's not some will of yours or of another person. It is in accordance with the will of God, the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, that you are born. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. This is, this is contingent upon your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Here's the big quote, the wind, and he's speaking of the spirit here. The wind blows where it wishes. The spirit's going to do what it wishes and what it wants. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. Semicolon. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, here's the secondary question. How many of you control the wind? I don't. You don't. I, I, I think governments have tried to do that with uh, cloud seeding, with little pieces of aluminum and high atmosphere stuff, and it doesn't work. So none of us chose to be born, physically speaking, and none of us can control the wind, and Jesus is using those two metaphors to, to say, guess what? Spiritually speaking, you did not choose to be born again, nor, nor did you influence the wind, the Holy Spirit. That, that, that greatly contradicts the vast amount of American pulpits, does it not? Yes, it does. I'll just shake my head, yes, it absolutely does. It greatly contradicts what most places, most teachers, and most preachers are teaching. Why? Because it's unbiblical. We've literally just broken this down like a 12-gauge shotgun out of the Word of God. It is right in front of us. I want you to understand that we're not the seekers of God. God is the seekers of us. I don't believe you. Romans 3, verses 10 through 11. 
as it is written. This is in the Old Testament. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But a natural man, this would be the unregenerate, the not born again, the not spiritual. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. If they are spoken to him, he will not accept them, he will not believe them. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Listen, he can't understand them. He is incapable of understanding them. He is incapable of seeing the truth found inside of them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. So we've just, what, done three proof texts for the fact that all of those evangelistic techniques to coerce people into coming to the front and saying yes to Jesus don't look anything like the Bible? Nothing like the Bible. Think about this for a second. Uh, Mothers and fathers, if you've had a kid before, they might have some recognition of mom and dad's voice at the time that they're born. I would argue that that's the exact same thing as every single man, woman, and child who's ever been born, understanding the fact that there is something greater and higher than they are by looking up at the sun, the star, and the moon. Does that mean that they know God? Nope, not at all. But listen, you must be born, physically speaking, in, in order to even lay your eyes upon your parents. Everybody would agree with that, right? What does the biblical text say? You cannot even see the kingdom of heaven unless you were born again, spiritually speaking. Hold on. Does a baby know you because it can see you? No. It doesn't know you. It might see you, but that does not indicate knowledge in any way. When that baby first opens its eyes and blasted by the light, it's seeing all sorts of stuff, it's starting to get an understanding of the world around it. And over time, as that baby continues to see, it continues to learn, it continues to actually be able to lay his eyes upon the truth of its reality, of his reality, of her realities, they look at their parents, they look at the world around them, what happens? They grow in their understanding and knowledge of who their parents are. Now, spiritually speaking, it's the exact same way. What happens? Jesus is saying, in order for you to even put, open your little baby eyes and put them upon me, which does not indicate a true knowledge yet, You must be spiritually born. And you didn't control that. Ah, locked into a trap, aren't we? Because we have to agree with the physical. And that logic in the physical is literally the exact same logic that Jesus is using here in the spiritual because of Jesus' own analogy. It's his. Romans 11, 5 through 10. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So a group of true believers according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, which is unmerited favor, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I've used this analogy before. If someone, uh, let, let's say the publisher's clearinghouse comes up to your, you've never done anything. Publisher's Clearinghouse shows up at your front door and they've got one of those giant cardboard checks for $10 million. If they say, hey, this is yours, free, all you have to do is sign for it, guess what you just did? You just purchased that $10 million check with your signature. Why? Think about that. They required something of you in order to even receive the money. But what does it say here? But if it is by grace, unmerited favor, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you think that you're spiritually born again because you consented apart from God or you said yes to Jesus apart from the movement of God upon you, that is a works-based salvation. You did something in order that God might move on your behalf. Ah, well, all he did was say yes. Is that not an action? That's an action. How many of you chose to be born? Zero. How many of you chose to be spiritually born? Zero. 
See what I'm drawing here from the text, right? The logic works. We have corresponding verses in the Bible that speak to the exact same thing. It is no longer grace in that circumstance. Uh, What then? What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen by God obtained it, and the rest were hardened just as it is written, quote, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. This is why grace is so beautiful to a Christian. It's why Christ is beautiful. It's why the cross is so beautiful. Because God moved when we were unwilling and hardened against Him. Spiritually born. God chose in eternity past those who He would draw unto Himself in accordance with His own gracious will. Uh, Ephesians 1 and 2. Ezekiel 36. uh, Romans chapter 8 and 9. Uh, You go down the list. Look at the intro to a lot of the epistles in the New Testament. Those of you who have been chosen, those of you who have been called, those of you who have been selected in essence, right? Those of you who have been drawn by the Father. Not that you drew yourself to the Father. That's foolish. Why? How many of you chose to be born? None. None. God moved, think about this again, God moved when we were unwilling and hardened against Him. That should give us cause for great joy. That should give us cause to celebrate Christ and what was done on our behalf. That should give us the desire to share that with other people. Why? Because I guarantee that if, I, if there was some terrible situation um, and I'm in some flipped over burning vehicle that I'm about to be consumed alive and then all of a sudden some weirdo in the woods runs out of the middle of nowhere on a dark night in the middle of uh, a long country road and he punches through my window and pulls me to safety and then he runs away. You better believe that every single time I have the option or opportunity to sell it. Yeah, guys, let me tell you. I was a dead man. (laughs) My car was upside down. I was pinned and it was on fire and I felt the flames. And there was nothing that I could do and no one could hear my screams. And then this weirdo ran out of the woods, punched through my window and dragged me to safety. Think about this. How many people would say these words? I chose for that guy that I didn't even know in the woods to run out of the woods, punch my window, and pull me out of my vehicle. People would look at you like, you're insane. You're absolutely crazy. You planned to flip your car, have it catch on fire, and you almost die in order that you might then also put that dude in the woods to run out, punch through your window, and save you? You're a liar. Well, what does the Bible say? Lost and undone. Didn't know where to go or what to do. Life's on fire. Everything's a wreck. Christ. Jesus. The Messiah, the Savior, salvation. The temple, the tabernacle, the ark. Noah's ark. The true David, the true Israelite, the true Abraham. The true Adam. Shows up and punches a hole in your chest so big that he can pull that rotten, cold, dead heart out and put a new one in there. The wind blows where it wishes. That should give us cause to rejoice. For those of us who have Christ, rejoice. He's the light of the world. He's the light of life. He himself is the light. If you don't have Christ and you feel the pressing weight of your sin and your rebellion against him, repent of your sin and believe him. Turn to Christ. Flee to Christ. 
cry out to Christ. Pray that God will save your soul because there is salvation in no other name than Christ Jesus. God, lay us low. Lord, help us to see ourselves not in light of ourselves or in the light of other people, but in the light of Christ. And lay us low. But God, in the midst of the people who saw you and were laid low and who recognized you, God, you lifted them from the lowness to walk in the heavenly places with yourself. That you encouraged us, that you breathed life into us, that you gave us everything that we would need in order to put one foot in front of the other and, God, do what you've called us to do and to walk the life that you've called us to live. God, we need you. Christ, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. This church needs you. This community needs you. the people who are turning their back on us because we love you and because we want to proclaim your word and we want to love on them with the truth of the gospel, they need you. Give us strength. Give us endurance. And God, let us set our eyes and fix our eyes on the hope that is found in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. and We give you glory, God, for the fact that you and you alone are God and that you have condescended to us in such a way that we can even see you. Father, it's in your name we pray. In accordance with your will we ask. Amen.